Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at AntiqueAuctionForum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. Hi everyone, this is Martin Willis. I'm back at Strawberry Bank for part two. Um, we're going to talk about the exhibition. I'm here with Kimberly Alexander. How are you doing, Kimberly? I'm very well, thank you. And first of all, how long does this exhibition run? The exhibition opened on May 1st, and it will go through October 31st of 2011. Great. Well, let's talk about it. The, the story is very well connected with Portsmouth and with New England and the Seacoast and the Civil War. Um, but it is a story that really makes us think. And it makes us think as about the past and about the Civil War, but it does make us think about our current, uh, the way we feel about issues like honor, uh, loyalty, heroism, valor, um, even scapegoating and injustice, because all of these things are part of the story of hero or coward, General Fitz John Porter. Um, Fitz John Porter was born here in Portsmouth in 1822. He, his father was uh, actually the commander of the Portsmouth Naval Yard. Hmm. Now, in those days, uh, families, uh, wives and the children, did not live on the base, although it wasn't far away, but it was a very interesting sort of scenario. So Mrs. Porter and her children, including young Fitz John, lived actually just a stone's throw away from us, Martin, mm -hmm. at, uh, right at Livermore Street. Oh, yeah. Um, right by Haven Park, where uh, there's a statue to There's a brick, General brick houses down there. Yep, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. And so he spent his first seven years here. His father died when he was very young. Uh, I think uh, he was seven or nine years old. Mm -hmm. His father was only in his 30s. Mm -hmm. um, and Porter also had cousins, uh, uh, David uh, Farragut. Uh, uh, Farragut House. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, Farragut was a famous uh, yes. Civil War. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Well, these are his cousins. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting about Porter is that everybody else in the family went into naval, uh, maritime. Um, and the earliest Porters to come from England were also involved in, in the sea. So right away you might think, hmm, Porter's a bit of a black sheep because he goes into the army mm -hmm. and he excels brilliantly he his early life is in Portsmouth he goes to Exeter mm -hmm. uh, and excels there um, the academy at the Exeter Academy mm -hmm. I'm sorry and then he goes off to and he actually I shouldn't say he excels there he doesn't at first mm -hmm. um, uh, my uh, consulting curator on the exhibit is Dr. Rick Schubert, a professor of history mm -hmm. there, and um, also leading scholar of Abraham Lincoln and his time, particularly in New Hampshire and in Exeter. Uh, so he goes to, to Exeter Academy. He does so-so until about his second year, and then he really gets with the program and does quite well. But he goes off to West Point. He graduates eighth in wow. his uh, class of 41 cadets. Mm -hmm. Impressive. What's also very important about his time at West Point, and I think it's a little hard for, certainly for, for me to understand initially, and now I get it, is that, of course, this is pre-Civil War. So he's in college 
with friends who, some of whom will stay with the Union and some who will join the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Happens so often. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he will even say later that one of the many reasons that he hated being involved in the Civil War, that it really was exhausting and, and hard for him, was because he was fighting against against his friends and uh, former instructors and things like that. So, so there are a number of powerful parts of this story. So he's, he's at uh, West Point. He really is pretty much groomed and destined to be a military man. Um, when the Mexican-American War breaks out, he's ready to go. Hmm. And he distinguishes himself. He's breveted, which means he it becomes promoted because of injury. That's like 1848 or mm-hmm. something. Yep, exactly. And he fights with none other than Ulysses S. Grant in the storming of the Berlin Gate. Hmm. Um, he was a, a, an amazing force. And in fact, there are stories uh, of his uh, fighting and tactical and leadership abilities, even then as a young man, that reached... Um, uh, 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 folks in Europe who were talking really? to Ulysses S. Grant when he did his travels. And Grant even talked about the fact that one of the most amazing things he'd ever seen was Porter during several of these battles in the Mexican-American War. So following um, his time at the Mexican War, he's already a decorated hero. He basically has a bit of a desk job for a while. Uh, which like Grant? <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, which actually doesn't really suit his temperament, although he's very good at it. Um, but as conditions start to deteriorate between the North and the South, he ends up doing a lot of work in the Western frontier, um, safeguarding uh, uh, troops and civilians out of Texas, for example, and, um, uh, and things like that. Again, none of which are his most favored you know, sort of responsibilities. Uh, he ends up... Uh, being part of the uh, McClellan uh, Corps, and he becomes the head of McClellan's Fifth Corps, which is a good-bad thing. His politics and McClellan's um, were opposite of that of Lincoln and the party. Right. Um, and so some things really we have to say, and this is one of the things we like to talk about with our visitors at the exhibit, is some things really don't change. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're if you are in the types of positions that he was in, you stand at risk of being scapegoated or um, charged in a new variety of different ways. And eventually that's what happens with, with Porter. He fights valiantly, brilliantly, um, all through the Civil War. He distinguishes himself particularly at the Battle of Malvern Hill. He was the senior officer in command. Um, McClellan had uh, left Porter in charge. He'd gone on ahead to uh, Harrison's Landing um, on the James River in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And Porter and his Fifth Corps prepared the grounds to create sight lines, clear trees. So they had the vantage point from the top of Malvern Hill and, uh, and held the hill against, uh, against Lee. And so Porter considered that his finest battle moment, the mm-hmm. day that he defeated Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So he distinguished himself. Uh, he was uh, given rank of, uh, of uh, major, and he received the presentation sword, which is one of the uh, artifacts in the exhibit that we're most excited about. And, Martin, I have to tell you this story. Well, let's hear it, because I right. heard little whispers about it. Okay, so this is one of those things in, 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 in 
your your work life that are such an aha moment. Um, uh, I I tend to work late late at night and well into the morning, and I was uh, doing some research on Porter's sword and. I found a newspaper account about a presentation sword, and and then I was looking at the court martial papers and the the various uh, pleas that were put out to reopen his case after he was court martialed, and in it, all he ever asks for is the return of his sword. Hmm. He wants the return of his sword. That's all he asks, which is maybe escapes some of us today. But I've come to realize that's because the sword embodied his name, his reputation. Mm-hmm everything he had fought for, because it was presented to him by his troops, by his leading officer. It's inscri- it, was, it had been inscribed with his name. It really was a tremendous uh, uh, honor. And he, everything that he was, in so many ways, is represented by that sword. Now, where was the sword held? Well, the, what ha- I don't know where it was held, but after mm-hmm. he was court-martialed, it was clearly taken away from him, since mm-hmm. he kept asking for its return. What struck me then in this this late night research was I also was reading his last will and testament, mm-hmm. and in that he mentions this he mentions two swords, but he mentions this sword and that he was willing his swords to his sons, so that if the country ever needed them, they would be able to use the swords to come to the aid of the United States. True patriot. True patriot, through and through. Even after everything that he'd been through, after 16 years of trying to clear his name after the court-martial. So so in the will, the uh, he mentioned that he wanted them to go to his sons. And so I immediately realized, well, then he got the sword back. It mm-hmm. must be somewhere. Mm-hmm. Where is it? And it was, oh, I don't know, 2 o'clock in the morning. And just for the heck of it, I googled... This is the power of the modern world and the tools that we use. I googled simply Fitz John Porter's sword. And don't tell me it came up. Not on the first page, because I am a historian, so I don't stop at the first page. But not on the second page. On the third page, the sword had just come up for auction. At an auction? At an auction. with a. Um, what are the odds of that? They are almost impossible, yeah. especially as you hear the story unfold, because uh, Michael Simons, who uh, is the owner of Historical Arms, had just put the sword online that day, mm-hmm. and at 9 o'clock that day, because keep in mind it's 2 in the morning, he would have released this announcement to his 9,000 plus readership list, mm-hmm. who would have scooped the sword Instantly, because he, as he said, he'd had time to do a little research, he knew who it belonged to, but he hadn't had time to do a lot. Hmm. It would not have lasted 24 hours. So what type of auction was this? It's like a a traditional uh, historical art or any type of furniture auction. It wasn't an online-only auction? No. Oh, I see. You could have been there in person, but he also distributes an online catalog. So I just happened Mm -hmm. to catch it at that moment before he'd done the full full release. And... um, I couldn't believe it. I read the description. It said, uh, I, I pulled it up, and there was the sword. It was inscribed, Major Fitz John Porter, USA for U.S. Army. Um, and he, his description, this is an extremely rare find. 
Um, this is a presentation sword uh, from 1860, field officer's sword, in excellent condition. Um, Price is good. Don't even bother to ask for discount. So and so and so. Well, we can't. It's, it's public knowledge. Um, yeah. The price uh, was forty eight hundred dollars, uh-huh. and um, we have a special fund which can only be used for when we deaccession other items from the collection. It can only be used for new purchases or conservation. Mm-hmm. And we luckily had enough money in this fund, so it didn't come from general operating. It came from a fund that could only be used for such things. Um, and I, my poor husband, was asleep. And I bet he didn't sleep, or you sleep the rest of the night. Of course not. I had to. I, I just say, Dane, 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 wake up, wake up! You're not going to believe this. So what I did then, after I found the sword, trying to sound very calm, I actually called the phone number. Luckily, this is at two o'clock in the morning. Yes, luckily this is not his home number. <laughs> And I left a message, and I said... Would you have cared? <laughs> well, yeah, it might have spoiled the deal. Yeah. Um, uh, but as our director, Laird Searden, said, she knew not to call me at 2 in the morning. Yeah. Um, but I left a message, and I tried to sound very calm. Um, and, I, and I said, uh, uh, you know, hello, Mr. Simons, this is Kimberly Alexander. I'm calling from Strawberry Bank Museum in Portsmouth, and we're doing a lot of work on, on Porter, and I'd love to talk to you about the sword, and um, I'll call you in the morning, and... Hang up the phone, and I'm like, ah, yeah. um, doing high fives. What part of the country was he in? Uh, he was, uh, I think, either in Ohio, I think okay. Ohio or Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And he found the sword totally cast off in a box at another person's auction. Wow. But he knew enough to know yeah. the make, and then he found the inscription. So mm-hmm. he looked him up, he knew he had something. But what's wonderful is uh, when we did find the talk the next day, he we got he we did the sign the deal over the phone and everything was all set. Um, once the information was released, he had at least three other offers for the same sword at a much higher price. Wow! Um, we're talking double and triple. Yeah, sometimes those swords can be fifteen, yeah. twenty thousand. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he, gentleman that he is, stuck with our agreement. Is that right? Yep. Wow. And he also teased me, though, too, because he said, uh, so what do you know about this sword? And I said, well, I said, you know, um, I talked about the will. And he said, you shouldn't tell me that because you've just doubled the price. You've doubled the value. And he said, what else do you know about the sword? And I said, well, we've got three. He said, do you have any photos? And I said, oh, we've got at least three photos of Porter holding that sword. He said, Kimberly? <laughs> he said, you've now tripled the value of the sword. Yeah. And I said, but wait a minute. We have a deal. And he said, of course. He said, but he said, if I'd done that work you wouldn't be able to buy this sword. Wow. So it was one That's of those amazing... That's good to amazing, hear. Honorable, uh, yes. honorable sword. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was to bring the sword back to Portsmouth. We had a, a formal unveiling um, uh, with Martha Fuller Clark, the head mm-hmm. of our, our board. And uh, it just... And what's been wonderful is that Port has been sort of a lost figure in Portsmouth. And people are reclaiming him now as Portsmouth's wow. own... Hero. Now we're getting near. Um, we've actually gone a little over time, I know. but let's so talk sorry. quickly. Manassas, the second battle. So the second battle of Manassas, we'd already lost it the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, McClellan, as you know, was not Lincoln's favorite. He was. He didn't they, want to fight. He, yeah. Well, well, and there's no evidence that's shown that that's not entirely true. But but from mm-hmm. Lincoln's perspective, his famous quote is, "I hear t- to paraphrase, I hear General McClellan, you have an army. If you're not using it, I'd be very happy to borrow it." That's right. Yeah. So that's so he'd withdrawn McClellan. He put in um, General John Pope, 
who was of his same political persuasion uh, and did not get along with Porter at all. Hmm. And at the Second Battle of Manassas, also known as Bull Run, it was an unqualified disaster. Miscommunications, lost memos and telegrams, a misunderstanding of the positions of the enemy. And so Pope had ordered Porter to attack, and this is a long story, so I'll make it short. But what Porter knew that Pope didn't know was the extent of the troops that he was facing and that Porter's entire corps would have been annihilated. Mm. So Porter, in Pope's view, disobeyed an order and dragged his feet. What came out later, after the court-martial. So, so Pope loses the second battle. He's taken off to the Western Theater because he's lost it for the second time. Oh, so he's even more humiliated. So Pope is really angry yeah. and humiliated. McClellan comes back, and McClellan and Porter then take part in Antietam. Mm-hmm. And then there's another falling out. McClellan's dragged out for good. And Pope, meanwhile, while he's sitting out on the Western frontier, is thinking, well, I'm not going to go down for this. Who's going to go down for me? Mm-hmm. Well, Porter is the top possibility. Yeah. So he submits maps and a case for insubordination and treason against Porter. Porter is brought in, and again, to talk about the idea of the soldier, when he's taken away to face court-martial in Washington, he addresses his men, his troops, and he tells them, he says nothing about what's going on in his life. He just says, men, you know, you're good men, keep fighting, we're doing this for the country, and he gives them this sort of you know, boost uh, conversation as he always did. Uh, and then they take him off um, to court-martial in November of mm. 1862. Mm. Uh, the jury is basically hand-selected by uh, Lincoln, and so is pro-Pope. Pope uh, submits maps. We actually have one in the, exhi- in the exhibit showing what he says happened that day. We have the map that was redrawn after the battle, with eyewitness accounts and the actual map makers, wow. uh, which come out after the battle, not you mm-hmm. know not during the court martial, which show the actual locations, for example, of Long uh, Longstreet's troops and how many there were, which is in line with what Porter actually said they were. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Porter's court martialed. The orders are signed. He's what's called cashiered from the army. Uh, in an order of, by order of President Lincoln. Sounds expensive. It, what does cashiered mean? It means you are basically stripped of all honor, all uh, rank, all pension, everything, and you wow. are no longer able to serve in any capacity that involves public trust in the country. Basically, you are fully and completely and totally humiliated. Wow. And this is early on in the war. I mean, mm-hmm. there's still... And, and the reasons that Lincoln years. went with this in terms of showing that you couldn't have what was considered an insubordinate officer in charge because that's how it was being presented. It's a very, really deep and complex story and fascinating for us today because we get it. We understand these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but so he's, he, his wife, Porter's wife talks about, and this is something to, contemporary minds have trouble, I think, understanding. It's not like you, you go on Oprah because you broke a toenail. No, you're dropped. People shun you. You know, the porters, if they walked down the street, people walked on the other side of the street to avoid them. They were no longer invited to events, to parties. People did not want to be seen with them in public. And Mrs. Porter is really the one who, who in many ways, saved 
general porter by saying, you've done nothing wrong. Come out with me. Come out with me. Come out with me. Show your face. And eventually what happens is he gets incredibly important positions um, for the city of New York and for New Jersey uh, as police commissioner, as transportation commissioner, um, things that really require a military strategist perspective to make them really work. Hmm. And he gets huge accolades for that. So even without his military service, he would have been remembered for these public offices. And yet there was controversy surrounding him even taking those offices. So even once really? he's exonerated um, uh, by the Schofield Commission, who has the information, the Schofield Commission actually hears Confederate officers who say Porter version is correct, and he was correct, and you would have lost everybody if you had followed wow. Pope's orders. But does the taint, that stigma, ever truly go away? Yeah. I think the question that we'd like to ask visitors, there are, two, there are several questions, but one is, knowing what you know about the story, would you have obeyed your supervisor, let's say it's your work job, your position, would you obey your supervisor because it's what you were supposed to do, because you were told to do it, or would you have disobeyed in order to save your troops, which is essentially, or your staff, which is essentially what it comes down to? And in the exhibit, we have two jars mm. for pennies with Lincoln on them, of course, <laughs> and you vote what you would have done. Yeah. And uh, most people, majority, say they would have disobeyed in order to save their friends, colleagues, or troops. You know, though, it, it happens so often in war where they just followed. They had such right. an allegiance to their, to, uh, yeah. you know, the general or something. And they, I mean, look at, there's many battles in the, that they talk about in the Civil War where they just kept coming and they just, even though they're, there's that stone wall, yeah. I'm trying to remember, and where they were lined up against the stone wall and then they just kept like row after row. It was like rain. Well, and it, like Gettysburg is one of the places where that happened. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. you just shot down one row after another after another. Yeah. And actually in Malvern Hill was much the same. Um, uh, one of the uh, Confederates said, it, this wasn't battle, this was murder. Yeah. I mean, it, the thing about, and that's the one thing that I think is really interesting about the story of Porter, in addition to his personal, the personal aspect, is to really get the sense of, I mean, it's, a, it's actually a dark story. It does not have a, we'd like, we want all our heroes to be heroes. Yeah. And Porter is a hero and also a non-hero. And it's, it's a, uh, he is exonerated. He becomes, you know, welcomed at the White House um, and so on and so on. But the politics were so strong that his name isn't fully cleared um, until um, it's under, um, Ch not Chester Arthur, uh, Grover Cleveland, mm -hmm. who is the first Democratic president within a long string from Reconstruction through the 1930s. Mm. He's the only Democratic uh, president during this long time period, and he is the one who signs the official exoneration of Porter during his first short term in 1886. Mm. So even at that level, and that expanse of time, even after everything's been proven, it still is politics, because that was when the papers were signed that exonerated him. Mm. Um, and and then Porter, two days later, on his of his own volition, resigned formally. Um, but the... So you've got the question of what would you have done in his situation, and that resonates with all of us. The idea of scapegoating yes. resonates. We all understand that. 
political injustice. We understand that. And the idea of, of the taint or the stigma of someone accusing you of something falsely. Mm. You know, anyone can think of even a small example on how you may have carried it with you for days or weeks or how it made you feel. Mm. So the question is, even once he receives this, act, this exoneration and even public accolades in many quarters, what, does it, what did it really do for his entire, you know, from his life from that time period on, from that 1862, yeah. the year that he turned 40? was a huge year in his life. It was the birth of his first daughter. Hmm. Uh, he spent his 40th birthday on the battlefield. Uh, he had his greatest success in July of 1862, and then his uh, support, insubordination treason charge in August of 1862. He's court-martialed in November of 1862, and by 1863, he's done. For a man who spent his entire life being yeah. groomed for military service. And who was also this, he also brings this New England spirit of, I can do this, a little bit of recklessness, but, and one of my favorite episodes about that is about the, the balloon, what we call the balloon incident. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, now, Martin, Martin people... you're never going to get rid of me. You keep <laughs> well, asking me these questions that I love to talk about, and we've got, and we have all new research on it, which is awesome. Yeah. Makes it exciting. These are not stories, you know. Your listeners are hearing a lot of this for the first time ever. That's right. Now, <laughs> I do want to say too that um, I did a. There's a local person here who's a collector in a Civil War uh, uh, expert and named John Ackerbloom. I talked with him. Yes. And we're, we were talking about the different things, and balloons was part of, like, uh, air reconnaissance or, or uh, it was. surveillance. It, start, it started with Porter and Thaddeus Lowe, who was in Newcastle, ah. who was the inventor. Um, and it's like they mixed uh, iron in acid for high, uh, some type of, not helium, No, it was, more, it, was, I, it was more of a gas base, actually, yeah. is... is, is is the way and it's deadly, described deadly and gas. very deadly, <laughs> and and that's actually one of the fascinating parts of the story. So, so Thaddeus Lowe, another New Hampshire uh, gentleman, uh, we consider with the obviously the the French had the first um, sort of uh, balloons of flight, but who really started to think about it in terms of a useful, really useful purpose. And it was Lowe who first went to Abraham Lincoln and to, and also McClellan and talked about the idea of the balloon for military service. And I think one of the things, probably, if you were to, if I was ever to uh, try and get any sort of clearance for any government agency, I'd probably be in a lot of trouble because um, <laughs> my first research on the balloon was through the CIA, web, CIA website. Uh-oh. Yeah. And red, red flag. Red flag right there. Um, because uh, prime on their list of early uh, surveillance and espionage um, uh, uh, approaches was the balloon. Hmm. And Porter, because of his training at West Point, um, was very skilled at quick drafting and, uh, and could give instructions to map makers and surveyors on the ground. So, wow. so Lincoln embraces the idea immediately, and they start a balloon corps. There actually was a hmm. balloon corps. It was short-lived, but there yeah. was one in 1862. And uh, Porter uh, and McClellan, who was always kind of very much into 
secret sorts of espionage things. Um, loved the idea of the surveillance possibilities of the balloon. And Porter was just their kind of man because he had no trouble scrambling up into the basket and taking a look around. And one of his earliest surveys was of the Yorktown, uh, the enemy uh, uh, camp at Yorktown in mm -hmm. 1862. And he started in the balloon and it was tethered and it got loose. Oh, the balloon was tethered. In this, and, and he was in the basket? Yes, and he was in the basket. And uh -huh. he, and he, I don't think at that point he'd flown solo, untethered. Uh -huh. And the balloon went up, and the shouts around the camp were, and we have newspaper accounts of all of this. It's fascinating. The balloon is loose. The balloon is loose. And he started drifting towards the Confederate lines. Uh -huh. And now he'd already been doing some surveillance tethered of where the campsites were, mm -hmm. how many men were there. Yeah. It was really pretty amazing. And, and, but now he's flying over, uncontrolled, <laughs> over toward enemy lines. And um, luckily Thaddeus Lowe, the inventor, was there giving him instructions and mm -hmm. saying, you've got to pull the valve rope to bring the balloon back over. Well, the valve rope... There are questions as to whether there was a, it accidentally had become corroded or whether there was sabotage. Ah. Because the valve broke, uh, the, one of the valve cords uh, actually broke, and he couldn't operate it manually. So he's throwing sand. So this chart pictures yourself in a balloon basket. You're flying over enemy terrain. They're firing at you. You're in an open oh. basket with no weapon because you're, you have your field glasses and your notebook. You're in a balloon that could explode mm -hmm. over all around you, this floating ball of gas, right? Mm -hmm. So, so you got to picture the fact that Porter is yes, he's a little reckless. So he's yeah. and so he's throwing sandbags over, and then Thaddeus Lowe saying, "Climb up and get the valve rope, pull the valve rope." So Porter starts shimming up out of the basket, his only protection. To manually close the valve to bring it's the like balloon a fish back net. in, it's yeah. like and he gets tangled up uh, in the netting while he's doing this. And some of the men are on the ground and they're placing bets. They're like, "He's never going to make <laughs> it." Something's never changed. Something's never changed. He's like, "He's never going to make it." The guy's too skinny. He can't climb up that rope. He won't yeah. make it. You know. And uh, and we also found out through another. I found out that actually recently. This is something, again, uh, brand new, that there were Confederate spies watching this whole event mm. who had been promised, and, and, and mercenaries had been promised $1,000 if they could bring down the balloon and capture Porter. Right. And That's a lot of money. There. Yes. And they're also there. They're there, they're there to defeat the Yankee balloon, as it was known. Mm. So you've got all of these things happening on the ground. Yeah. Porter's in the air. Finally, he so he shimmies up, he gets control of the thing, but he gets tangled in the netting. The balloon starts not gently gliding, but starts plump, plummeting toward the ground. Porter sees a tree, realizes this is his only chance, and he jumps out. Wow. Lands in the tree, gets tangled. He's hanging upside down in the tree mm. with the fumes from the, the balloon filling his lungs. Mm. And what's he doing? He's yelling to the map maker to the, these instructions. I saw this, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. Oh, really? Huh? And Robert Sneedon, who's well-known as a map maker, recounts part of this incident huh? um, as an on-site. Then we have the Confederate's account of this incident because he wrote an article in the uh, Detroit Free Press, this unnamed um, ex-Confederate, he is all he signed it, that showed up in the Duluth papers uh, in 1868 
And he said he was a group among a group of five men that had been hired to bring down the Yankee balloon. And he was actually there. And what he'd done was he'd infiltrated in with the Union troops that were surrounding Porter as he was coming down. He had a pipe filled in his pocket, and he was getting ready to strike a match to oh. blow up the balloon. Wow. And everything around it. And as he was pulling out the match to strike, as he said, a big old sergeant came and lay his hand on me and said, You infernal idiot! What do you mean to do? Blow up the balloon? And he thought to himself, Yes, I did. <laughs> but he thought it was best if he slunk out of there quickly, so he put it away and he disappeared. He said he never knew what happened to the other men who had been asked for the, to do the same job, and he decided to leave well enough alone. And we don't know what happened to him. But that's another account of that famous mm. balloon ride. And Porter is at the center of it because of his uh, abilities and his, uh, as you say, a little bit of recklessness thrown in. Now, he had field glasses, and you have those field glasses. Yes. Well, actually... And he, um, may, he may have dropped them because there's a dent in them. Exactly. Yeah. The, the field glasses are on loan from um, Manassas Battlefield State uh-huh. Park from the Park Service. Uh-huh. Um, and they loaned the field glasses and a wonderful uh, uh, plaque of George McClellan for the exhibit. Mm. Um, and the field glasses were put on deposit with the Park Service by Porter's oldest daughter, uh, Evelina in hmm. 1947 hmm. and it's one of the few times they've been on view to the public and yes they are dented and bruised and show good wear and it is most likely that that happened the day that he had that quite perilous ride and was thumping around down hmm. to the ground and into the tree so being able to look at an object like the field glasses and know where they've been who held them how they were used and what yeah. they've been through is a staggering way of connecting us with the past, yeah. and I think the the audience, uh, those who've experienced the exhibits of all ages, really are very excited about this exhibit. Visitors' comments are superlative. The kids love it and stay. And stay I enjoyed it a lot myself. It was very nice. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We really tried to do some different things, and and again, and and then the, yet the underlying story, the the, the large uh, view of the court martial, for example. You want to put yourself in Porter's place. It wasn't like a, a law and order mm-hmm. courtroom. It was one table with twelve men gathered around it in a closed room. Think about the tension the body language um, in this still room while this court-martial is going on and Porter is standing there with his defense at the top of the table. You know, those sorts of things are maybe are those sort of dreaded moments that we all have had or hope we never have um, in some capacity or another, but it, 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 it's, it's, it's powerful. And it, I think it resonates with us. Mm. And so the whole Porter story, I think, does. And, and I, that's why I think people are connecting with it so strongly. And it is, of course, the uh, beginning of the 150th commemoration of the Civil War. Yeah. And I think the more, at least from my personal perspective, the more I learn about it, the less I know about it. It's a, sure. a sad, fascinating amazing story about about human nature at its 
most worst and in its best. Over 600,000 men died in that war. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. You're a great guest and Thank very you. informative. And we hope that the listener will come and check out the exhibition here at Strawberry Bank. Please do. Yeah. So this is Martin Willis with Kimberly Alexander, and we're signing off.